recording. I'm going to put this here, even though I know it's in the camera shot. Excuse me. According to history.com, in 1966, the federal government declared Waterloo, New York, the official birthplace of Memorial Day. Waterloo, which first celebrated the day on May 5th, 1866, was chosen because it hosted an annual community-wide event during which businesses closed and residents decorated the graves of soldiers with flowers and flags. However, this same website, which is history.com, sounds really cheesy and cheap, but it's actually the website of the, the History Channel itself, so it's a little more legit than it sounds. But it tells of a more recent discovery um, that calls these facts into question. It wasn't until a remarkable discovery was made in a Harvard University archive in a, in a dusty old box in the, 19, in the late 1990s that historians learned about a Memorial Day that was organized by a group of black freed people, uh, black people free from enslavement less than a month after the Confederacy surrendered in 1865. Back in 1996, David Blight, a professor at the American History of Yale University, was researching a book on the Civil War when he had those once-in-a-career kind of unique sort of moments. A curator at the library asked if he wanted to take a look through a couple of boxes of unsorted material from Union veterans. There was one labeled First Decoration Day. Inside was a piece of cardboard with a narrative written, handwritten on a piece of cardboard by an old veteran, plus a date referencing an article in the New York Tribune. That narrative told the essence of the story uh, that he ended up putting into his uh, book of a march that happened on a racetrack in 1865. The clubhouse at the Charleston racetrack where the 1865 Memorial Day events took place. Uh, the racetrack in question was the Washington Race Course and Jockey Club in Charleston, South Carolina. Didn't that sound like just a Charleston title there? In the late stages of the Civil War, the Confederate Army, though, was using it as a makeshift prison. They were taking this formerly posh country club, and they were keeping prisoners out on the racetrack, out in the open. Uh, more than 260 Union soldiers died from disease and exposure while being held in that open air field. Their bodies were hastily buried in like a mass grave behind the grandstands. When Charleston fell and Confederate troops evacuated the badly damaged city, those freed from enslavement remained. One of the first things those emancipated men and women did was to give those fallen Union soldiers a proper burial. They exhumed the mass grave, they dug it up, and then they buried them again in a new cemetery with tall whitewashed fence uh, that was inscribed with the words, Martyrs of the Race Course. And then on May 1st, 1865, something even more extraordinary happened. According to two different reports that Blight, the uh, author of this book, found in two different newspapers, a crowd of 10,000 people, mostly freed slaves with some white missionaries, uh, staged a parade around the racetrack. 3,000 black school children carried bouquets of flowers and sang John Brown's body. 
members of the famed 54th Massachusetts and, and other black union regiments were in attendance and performed double time marches. Black ministers recited verses from the Bible. If the news reports are accurate, the 1865 gathering of the Charleston racetrack would be the earliest Memorial Day celebration. Blight was so excited that he called the Avery Institute of African American uh, History and Culture at the College of Charleston looking for more information about the event where he was told, I've never heard of it. It didn't happen. Once the war was over and Charleston was rebuilt in the 1880s, the city's white residents likely had little interest in remembering an event held by former enslaved people to celebrate the Union dead. That didn't fit their version of what the war was all about, says Blight. By the time Blight was rummaging through those Harvard archives in 1996, the story of that first Memorial Day had almost been completely forgotten. After his book was published in 2001, he traveled around talking about this story amongst, amongst many others. And one of those talks he gave at, uh, about Memorial Day at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. And after he was finished, an older black woman approached him. She said, you mean that story is true? I grew up in Charleston, and my granddaddy used to tell us the story of a parade at the old racetrack, and we never knew whether to believe him or not. You mean it's true? It's always interesting the versions of stories that we listen to and that we learn. If it's in a book, if a government official says this is so, often we believe it to be completely true. And it's usually the people in power that get to tell the stories. We shape our history so that it tells the stories and paints the pictures that we want it to. There are often heroes we don't recognize. There are people who've made sacrifices, given everything, but they don't fit into the story of power, and so we write them out. This is true of our scripture passage for today as well. When I came back to this passage with fresh eyes to begin preparing the sermon a couple weeks ago, um, there were just some things that stuck out for me that I'd never really paid attention to. I'd always heard about, uh, this is the text called Paul and Silas in prison, and obviously that features is a main piece of this story. I'd heard about the walls shaking down in prison. Paul and Silas are singing and praising God. I always kind of pictured, and I don't know if I came up with this or if somebody told me this, something like a, a youth camp kind of moment. Like, you know, uh, come on, everybody, you know how, you know the words, um, doing motions and everything. They were so joyful, I was taught, that God freed them. And in turn, God would free me from anything difficult or harmful if I would just, whatever it was, fill in the blank for what hard thing it was, if I would just learn to be joyful within it. But when we look at the larger story, there's a much different picture here. It is a story of liberation, of brutality, of politicians and men with power and money and resources who refuse to do the right thing. It's a story of an almost suicide of a Roman soldier who was caught in the middle of a power dynamic. Our story starts with a girl who's being used for a gift she has. Her special gift, we're told, results from being possessed by a demon. 
And it's that she can tell the future and her owners are making money off of her. They are abusing her. She is their slave. Somehow she enters the orbit of Paul and Silas who are visiting and she follows them around for days proclaiming loudly who they are and what their purpose is. Paul doesn't immediately heal her. He doesn't free her. He doesn't immediately release her from her bondage. We're told it's after Paul is very much annoyed (laughs) that he does something to help her. We're not told why Paul doesn't immediately cast out the demon. Why did it take him getting to the point of frustration and, and being annoyed to do something? Was he preoccupied? Was he busy? Did he feel like he had other more important things to do? Maybe it's a little of all of that, along with the fact that he knew what could happen if he freed her. Often we stay silent to keep the power and the comfort that we have, to not ruffle any feathers, to not offend someone else. What do we believe is right, but we don't act on? We don't want to be too loud about. It's hard to be the one to stand up for the kid or the adult who's getting picked on, to be the one that everyone is making jokes about, to be the one who questions people's perceptions and notions of others. It's easier to just go along with everyone else. Because when you stand up, when you speak up, when you defend or challenge, it's easy for you to become the target. And so, so many times we stay silent. This is, in fact, what happens to Paul and Silas. The crowd is unleashed on them, and they're beaten with rods by an angry mob. And then bruised and beaten, they're thrown into jail, a jail that probably was smelly and disgusting and dark. They're sitting there with their open wounds and bruises and all of the pain from what they've just experienced, physical pain. One of them must have had an idea, and maybe it just just pours out of them to begin praying, to begin singing. In our moments of desperation, we begin with quiet pleadings, soft urgings to God. There may have been youth group style, loud, joyful singing, even with the motions. But I think it was probably more prayerful because out of desperation, their soft prayers and hymns rose up. I feel like it was probably more the words of deep longing, of crying out for a broken world. And that kind of praying, worshiping, singing is something we know, we know something about. And then the miracle, the earthquake. Paul and Silas are free to go. They've been liberated, but they choose to stay. They don't want to flee. They don't want to be on the run. They choose to stay to give up the power that would allow them the easy out from this situation. The jailer wakes up and sees what has happened while he was asleep on the job. He's a man who has power and authority, but he's still caught under an oppressive kind of government that has high expectations of him. This week, uh, one of my favorite authors, Nadia Boltzweber, preached on this passage, revealing that she had recently lost a friend by suicide. Boltzweber humanized the text by asking, what lies did the jailer believe before reaching for his sword? The jailer was saved by one simple act, she said, from the shadows. As the jailer took the sword, Paul said, do not harm yourself. When the jailer heard Paul's voice, he knew he wasn't alone. 
while this methodology doesn't always work, she says, all people need to know that they are not alone. We hear from the owners of the slave girl. We hear from the political leaders. We hear from Paul and Silas. It is true that around the loudest, most prominent voices, uh, more powerful voices, there's more to the story. There are years of waiting for liberation, for peace, for purpose. There's years of waiting for someone to see you. All around us, there are stories unfolding of power and prominence alongside the most vulnerable. There have been shootings in grocery stores in Buffalo. There was the release of the awful report from the Southern Baptist Convention and their handling or or not handling it, in fact, covering up and vilifying women in sexual abuse cases. Then we have what happened in Uvalde, Texas this week. There were many prominent, powerful voices that had lots to say about these things, opinions to give, power to hold on to. But what do we do when we're faced with the interwoven stories of of power and liberation? What do we do to listen to all the voices, to make sure that no one's story is erased? The discouraging thing for me is that so many of the loudest voices that refuse to challenge power, that refuse to create change, that refuse to be honest today, are those that have set themselves up as the voices of Christianity. In recent months, they've been the ones that are more concerned with having to give up their privilege of not wearing a mask in public. They're now more concerned with banning books and creating ways for parents to sue teachers who teach things they don't agree with. Too many Christians are more concerned about power than they are about people. We are not willing to look at facts, hard, proven facts. Instead, we want the right buzzwords to be said to us. We want to feel right, to feel righteous, to feel like we're the victims. Last weekend, a candidate somewhere else in the country loudly was and angrily spoke to a crowd of constituents that no one would tell them they couldn't worship Jesus. There would be no separation of church and state anymore. She stood in front of a sign that simply said, guns, Jesus, babies. These voices are often more concerned with stirring up a base in order to keep their power than they are about really caring about anyone else. As Christians, I believe we cannot be more concerned about books in school libraries or or masks or making sure we have the right to question or sue teachers who teach something we don't agree with. I feel like I'm probably preaching to the choir on some of this, that maybe you agree with some of that. But where I get convicted and maybe you do too, is that we can't be more concerned with our own comfort, with just keeping the peace, that we don't speak up around those closest to us and question their views or even offer a different way of understanding out of love. Each day we choose where we want to be in the story of power and deliverance. Like Paul and Silas, we're not promised protection or power. No one will probably applaud for us, for standing up for what's right. Corrupt power in church and Christianity and denominations and politics and our communities will always do everything it can to protect itself. 
that power becomes the obsession. And anything that tries to stand up to it will face consequences. But we speak up. We share who we voted for. We find ways to talk about policy with love. We stand up to the racist jokes, to the jokes that degrade women and those that put down anyone who is not like us. We stand up to those who pick on and bully others. And that goes for kids and adults. We do it because there's someone like that slave girl who needs liberation, who needs to be freed. There's someone like that soldier that needs to feel seen and to know that they're not alone. We stand up to abuse of power because there are women's stories that need to be heard. There are women who need to be supported and loved. When there's more concerned with power, threaten harm and even death to them. We stand up to the abuse of power when people of color who should be able to go to church, go to the grocery store, go about their lives without having to worry that a radicalized 18-year-old is going to open fire on them. We stand up to the abuse of power because of what happened in Uvalde, Texas. We stand up to the abuse of power because there are survivors who now have to find a way to live with what they have experienced. In our little world, we stand up to those who would harm or belittle or make fun of others because we know that each person is made in the image of God. In our own little world, we stand up to those racist jokes, to jokes about people's appearances, to the vilification of women and girls because those that abuse power are propped up by large systems of people who often never lovingly challenge them to think and act differently. We have the hard conversations. We stick our necks out. We call or email or send letters to our politicians because they need to hear that we care. Our silence in these moments will be deafening. Benjamin Creamer this, said this week, our public witness as Christians should make people say, look at the power of their love, not look at how much they love power. What is your love motivating you to do today? Theologian Dante Stewart wrote this week, when we're faced with so much inhumanity, we need an alternate alternative imagination that accepts our humanity, fights for it, embraces it, and reminds us again and again and again and again that life is not just about resisting all this, but it's about creating something different, something better. Back to that expansive Lent. It's about creating something new that's possible. I want to challenge you this week to create something different. Speak up. Love well. Be kind. Show anger when you feel it. And when you need to, donate money, call, and write your politicians. I'm actually going to send out an email this afternoon, and I'm not telling you what to say. Um, I, in the email, I'll give you a script if, if you would like to speak up um, to say that. Um, I, this is not an opportunity to push any political, <laughs> one-sided political view but it's an opportunity, I think, to educate. If you'd like to know how to speak up to power, I'm going to send out an email that would help you to do that this afternoon, whatever you say to them when you speak to them. 
It'll include information on how to contact your um, politicians. It'll include some links for organizations to donate. And just if you some links, if you want to learn some more, this will be specifically about uh, gun use and gun violence in our country today. As many have said this week, don't believe that nothing you do or say matters. We're called to create a different world, to believe that a different way is possible, and then find small ways to work towards that. This morning, our closing song um, is one that we have used for worship seasons before. Uh, It is Beautiful Things, and it is one that I would invite you to let be a prayer, to sing along uh, as you feel led. Um, But our prayer this morning is that God would take all the things that we grieve, that we would give it over, that we would have the courage to stand up, even when things feel really unfair in our world, whatever it is that we're grieving. And we know that when we give it over to God, God can make beautiful things from it.